I'm Beyang Liu, and you're listening to The Changelog. Welcome back, everyone. This is The Changelog, and I'm your host, Adam Stachowiak. This is episode 217, and today, Jared and I are talking to Beyang Liu. Beyang is the CTO and co-founder of Sourcegraph, and Sourcegraph is aiming to be the Google for code. We talked about the backstory of Sourcegraph, how it works, ideas around offline support, how it's licensed, which led us to talk about their new software license called FairSource. We have two sponsors today, Linode and DataLayer, a one-day event organized by our friends at Compose. Learn more at datalayer.com. Our first sponsor of the show is our friends at Linode, cloud server of choice here at Changelog. Get a Linode cloud server up and running in seconds. Head to linode.com slash changelog to get started. Choose your flavor of Linux, resources, and node location. Plan start at just 10 bucks a month. You get full root access, run VMs, run containers. You can even manage your Linodes from the comfort of terminal using Linode CLI. They've got SDKs in Python, Perl, PHP, Ruby, JavaScript, Node.js, so you can hack away on your Linodes with their API. Take advantage of add-ons like backups, node balancers, DNS manager, and more. Again, use our code changelog20 for 20 bucks in credit. With unlimited uses, tell your friends. Head to linode.com slash changelog. And now onto the show. We're back. We got Beyond Lou here from Sourcegraph. Jared, we we like to trudge through open source, right? And and not just open source, but the details of it, the functions, the the language, and uh, and see where their use cases are. And this is exactly what Sourcegraph does. And yep. So Beyond's here, obviously, to tell us about his his company, but also all the cool open source they're doing at Sourcegraph. Yeah, and I feel like Beyond's kind of uh, he's he's been on Beyond Code, and then recently he was. Uh, featured on go time and now he's on the changelog so that's the <laughs> he's making his rounds it's like hitting for the cycle yes thank you guys for uh having me it's great to be here well beyond let's uh let's begin with your origin story i think that uh you know graduated from stanford you got a unique path to where you're at today but uh aside from working at some cool companies and figuring out some developer problems where did things actually begin for you like how far back do we go to uh to figure out where you Got your interest peaked around open source or around software development? <laughs> uh, well, if you want to go origin story, I guess I should start with uh, uh, my birth. <laughs> uh, I was born in China, but uh, I was raised in the, the Midwest. I always like to mention that in case there are any Midwesterners out there listening. Um, you're talking to Midwesterners. Them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, uh, Jared, you're out in uh, Nebraska, right? I'm Come in on. Nebraska and Adam's in Texas. So yeah. there you go. Texas. Nice. That's awesome. No wonder you guys are such nice guys. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I grew up in the Midwest, but uh, came out to California for uh, high school. And I think I first got into programming just, you know, I had to buy a TI-83 uh, graphing calculator for some, uh, I think it was like high school geometry. Yes. And I happened to get the version of the calculator that came with like the 500-page uh, reference manual, uh, which not all versions come with, but this thing is like a, like it's got everything you ever would want to know about the TI-83 calculator and mm. it includes a section in the back that teaches you how to to write the dialogue of basic um that they have on the calculator and so i would um 
when I was taking the bus back and forth uh, from school, I would just kind of like whip that book out and try to program stuff on the calculator um, in my spare time, you know, program some cool animations or some, you know, uh, automated formula calculators. And that's kind of how I got into it. And I liked it enough that after that, you know, my, my school offered a computer science class. I ended up taking that. Um, had a great Can teacher. Can I stop you for then, a second, Beyong? Because yeah. I had the TI-86 in high school, which is like pretty much the exact same calculator. Yeah. And mine also came with the manual, but mine came with something that to me was better than the manual, which was the game Nibbles, which is basically... <laughs> did you have that one on yours? No, I did not have Nibbles. See, uh, now this, this could have changed the course <laughs> of your life because I had Nibbles, therefore I was not going to program anything into that thing. I just tossed the manual out and just played nibble <laughs> the entire way to school. Yeah. So lucky you. The TI-86, I think, had a slightly faster uh, processor. Uh, I was always envious of, of the folks who had that. Um, Maybe that's why it came with nibble's stock and yours didn't. That's probably why. Yeah. It just, ha it just had uh, just enough RAM to run nibbles. <laughs> exactly. Anyways, keep going. Yeah, um, I, I had a great teacher by the name of uh, Mr. Oliveris in high school. He was great at, uh, you know, just laying down the facts for, for computer science. Ended up kind of loving it, uh, went off to college. I knew I wanted to do something, you know, math or science related. And um, computer science just seemed like uh, kind of like the perfect marriage between stuff that was theoretically interesting, but also uh, stuff that would have kind of a, a real world impact. Um, so that's kind of how I got into this whole thing. So you got this, this calculator, obviously, and Jared, you mentioned that you had one similar to the TI-86 and young, you got the TI-83 and, uh, Jared, many people that come on this show, their origin stories sometimes begin with gaming. And whereas beyond right. his, his history, it sounds like beyond if this, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like what you're saying is that you were really interested in the sciences, which I think most computer scientists are anyways, but you know, you're kind of interested in sciences, but more importantly, the things that you can actually implement today and change the world around versus being interested in simply just games to get you excited about that. Is it fair to say that or is that not the truth? Yeah, you know, I, I'd like to think I had <laughs> so noble of a mentality back in high school, but uh, to be <laughs> honest, I think the... The, the the reason why I never got into Nibbles or any other calculator game was I just had no patience for reading through how to install those things. And the calculator didn't come with any games pre-installed. And, right. you know, I, like, Googled some stuff on, like, you know, how do I install, you know, uh, I think the, the game that everyone else was playing was, like, Penguin, which is this, like, Super Mario clone. Um, and I could just never figure, quite figure out how to install that on my calculator. And then I just gave up. So it was really, really out of sloth and uh, <laughs> laziness. I like that. <laughs> well, laziness means you're, you make a great programmer. Yeah. <laughs> Another question might be, is, do you still have the manual? Do you still have this 50-page manual lying around by any chance with notes in it? Yes. Bookmark and yes, stuff? Yes, I do. It's still on my bookshelf. Wow. I, awesome. Yeah. It sounds like you had kind of a straight and narrow path to, to where you are in terms of education and desires. And lots of people kind of change what they, they're not sure what they like. They, maybe they find out through video games. Maybe they find out uh, through reading books or whatever it happens to be. Other people take completely different course changes in life or in career before they end up being in software. Uh, take us to where we met you. So this is a GopherCon. Was it 2015? Yep. July yeah. 2015 GopherCon. You now have the source graph 
thing. Maybe it's a company at this point. Maybe it's just a side project. But you meet us there. You're in to go, and you have this source graph. Your 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 answer to the most influential open source project for you was source lib. Was what you said when we asked you that question. So yeah. take us from where you just left off. Bring us all the way back up to the near future. Near future. Huh. The near present, which was <laughs> July 2015. How did how'd you get there? Um, yeah, so, you know, I went to college, knew I wanted to do something math and science related. Um, after I took the very first CS class at Stanford, I kind of knew that um, this was probably the right thing, at least for the next uh, four years. So declared the major. I was fortunate enough to uh, be accepted into a research lab as, a, as an undergrad. Uh, Stanford has this great undergraduate research program called Curis. Um, and so I landed in uh, Daphne Kohler's uh, research lab, and uh, she was a great mentor. She eventually became my advisor. Um, I really got into AI research. Um, for a while, I thought I was going to get a PhD in computer vision or machine learning, something like that. Um, but after doing that for a while, um, I kind of decided that industry was probably where I wanted to be uh, more. And so I started looking around for companies that I thought were doing interesting things with, you know, large data sets. And uh, at uh, that point in time, this was, you know, 2011, um, Palantir uh, was a big presence in the Stanford campus at that point. And it seemed to me that they were tackling uh, some really interesting problems uh, with large data sets uh, and doing um, really impactful things in the world. So uh, I decided to join them. Uh, landed on the commercial side, um, which uh, basically works with a lot of companies in industry to help solve their most important uh, technological and software-related problems. And mm. it's kind of there that I got to work closely with uh, my future co-founder, Quinn Slack. We, we'd, we'd gone to school together and kind of knew each other from there, but um, it was at Palantir where we really you know, got to spend some quality time together um, and that was also, uh, kind of a tipping point for me because, um, I think a lot of the roots of, of source graph were, were planted in that experience. Uh, so, you know, Quinn and I are both CS majors by background. So we both kind of had this, uh, this pain that I think every programmer feels, which is like, man, it seems like it's harder than it should be to find existing code and, and reuse it. You know, like it, it just seems like I'm spending too much time, uh, you know, searching the Internet, crawling through, you know, random forums, trying to find uh, the answer to how to do this pretty straightforward thing in code. Um, and so we, we, we felt that kind of day to day pain as programmers. But the experience at Palantir kind of showed us that this is a problem that's not just relevant to uh, programmers now. It's actually relevant to, you know, say the the top leadership at one of the, the big five banks in the, the U.S. Because um, what we realized was, um, you know, right, right now we're kind of this point where software is, is becoming mainstream. Um, and what I mean by that is, uh, you know, it used to be that uh, for non-technology companies, you know, technology uh, companies that are outside of Silicon Valley, um, software engineering was kind of, an afterthought or just a, a small department uh, or that, you know, they might outsource it to some other firm. But these days it's becoming more of a core competency. Uh, you know, more and more of the 
uh, core logic of the business is actually captured in the logic of code. Uh, and that's what we realized working at Palantir with, with the types of customers uh, that we were working with. Um, and what we realized was as painful as it was for, for us, the pain was felt you know, 10 times as much outside of Silicon Valley um, where you know, companies aren't traditionally steeped in you know, all the different processes and principles that we kind of soak up um, being immersed in uh, the software development world um, on like you know, how to run an engineering team and what tools to use to find the answers to everyday questions. And so we kind of st- took a step back and uh, we're like, hmm, this seems like a, a solvable problem. You know, code, code is just another form of data. Uh, and, you know, at Palantir, we're building all these fancy tools for, for other sorts of uh, knowledge workers to analyze, you know, their data sets. But the tools that we seem to be using as programmers, um, both, you know, at Palantir and uh, at uh, some of the customer sites that we're working with, still seem kind of primitive. Um, I mean, like the number, the top two code search uh, utilities today are probably, you know, Google search and grep. And, mm-hmm. you know, Google is just kind of like the all purpose, you know, fallback. Like when you, we have no other recourse, it's kind of like the Hail Mary. Like I hope somewhere uh, someone has written a blog post or an answer out there that answers my question. And uh, grep is, you know, a great tool. It's a powerful tool, but it was written in the 1970s and hasn't really changed much uh, since then, even as the world of software has evolved around it. So then we kind of got to think about this idea. Um, we didn't start working on it right away. I went back to school to finish up my master's. Um, Quinn went off and started uh, another company with some folks from Palantir. Uh, and then we kind of serendipitously uh, met each other um, at uh, some house party in San Francisco. Actually, <laughs> it, it might not have been serendipitous. I uh, later learned that uh, Quinn's um, then girlfriend, now wife, um, she, she knew that he was thinking about this problem and she knew that I was going to be at this house party. So she kind of like orchestrated the whole meeting. That's interesting. Um, wow. <laughs> which is kind of kind of funny. But so you, you must send her nice cards for Christmas and stuff. Yeah, yeah, she's great. Um, but yeah, at at the time, you know, it felt like, oh, you know, you know, you're thinking about this as well. We got to kind of talking, um, and then we started just hacking on this, and um, you know, got to a proof of concept uh, pretty quickly that, at least in our minds, demonstrated the value that this could provide. And then we spent kind of uh, the next uh, maybe year and a half. Uh, to two years, uh, just building it out and testing both like the technical side, um, which, you know, a lot of people didn't actually think could be done uh, initially when we started. And uh, also the product side, which is, you know, how do we actually make this something that people can rely on every day? And uh, that, I think, brings us up to GopherCon 2015. You know, we're, yeah. we were a company at that point by then, but we're still relatively small. I think we only had a a handful of people, um, but uh, we were pretty, pretty. Uh, we we had a good amount of traction by then, uh, at least in open source, and uh, it it seemed like you know we were we were definitely onto something, and it was it was exciting to go to GrowthCon and kind of share the uh, 
the the tool that we'd built with the people and kind of see their reaction. Yeah. It's interesting that you, you, you said a very similar sentiment when we interviewed you for Beyond Code that you just said here a few minutes ago. And what you said then in the last summer was in the next 10 to 20 years, every interesting company is going to become a software company at its core. Yeah. And so this seems like an insight that you've had over time and continue to believe to this day. Yeah, I really think, uh, I mean, there's been a couple additional points of validation, I think. Uh, so, you know, have you guys seen uh, General Electric's uh, most recent ad campaign? I think they aired it during the Super Bowl where they're kind of rebranding themselves. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're a digital company that happens to do infrastructure. Yeah, it's like they're they're both. Like, don't think about them that way anymore. Now think of them as like a software slash hardware company. Or... Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And that that really indicates that they're kind of they're putting software first. Um, another you know recent news item was uh, the recent outage at uh, Delta Airlines, where you know a software glitch uh, basically shut down the airline for um, you know a day or more. And you know if if we live in a world where, you know, a software bug like that uh, basically shuts down, the, like makes it so you can't do business, that means that um, even as an airline, you know, you, you may think your core business is uh, flying planes, setting prices, uh, and all of that is, is done more and more so in software. I guess we've gotten this far here so far with uh, your backstory, and we've mentioned SourceGraph a couple of times, even in the intro. I'm going to have to rewind myself and get upset because I didn't actually say what SourceGraph is, but we're, we're getting close to our first break. But before we go into that break, let's have you break down exactly what SourceGraph is. Obviously, you've kind of teed up some of the ideas for which SourceGraph was built around, but help our listeners understand that when we come back from the break, we'll go a little further into it. But what is SourceGraph? SourceGraph is basically global jump to definition, find references, and documentation lookup across all the code you use, whether it's private or public. Um, And it understands the code at a semantic level. So that means when you're jumping to a definition or searching for something, it knows the difference between a function call and the occurrence of, you know, that particular name and some random doc string. So it basically, you know, those are things that programmers do every day. And it's a tool that helps you answer uh, the most common everyday programming questions in seconds. There you have it. Let's uh, let's take a break then, because we got tons of questions about SourceGraph. Everything from licensing to what you're open sourcing, how you choose what to open source, uh, why you even open source, and maybe some of the perspectives you have around how you license uh, the different software you have and stuff like that. And this big idea of being able to be the Google of code, basically. Uh, so let's pause here, take a break, and when we come back, we'll dive a little further in. If you're focused on the data layer, there's an awesome conference being put on by our friends at Compose. Monolithic databases are so 20th century. Today, teams are using a JSON document store for scale, a graphing database to create connections, a message queue to handle messaging, a caching system to accelerate responses, a time series database for streaming data, and a relational database for metrics and more. It can be hard to stay on top of all your options, and that's why you should attend. While much talk in developer circles these days focuses on the app layer, not enough attention is placed on the data layer, and data is the secret ingredient to ensuring applications are optimized for speed, security, and user experience. Here talks from GitHub, Artsy, LinkedIn, Meteor, Capital One, and several startups, including Elemento and DynamiteDB. 
talks range from the Polyglot Enterprise to using GraphQL to expose data backed by MySQL, Elasticsearch, and more. The conference is in Seattle on September 28th. Tickets are just 99 bucks, and ChangeLog listeners get 20% off. Head to datalayer.com and use the code CHANGELOG when you register. back with Beyond Lu, CTO of Sourcegraph. And Beyond, before we took the break, we obviously got to get an explainer of exactly what Sourcegraph is, but it's, it goes much deeper than this. It's the, you know, by, I'm not sure if you coined this term or not, if this was the new stack or, um, or Susan Hall who wrote this article, but uh, the title is Sourcegraph aims to be the Google, the Google for code. Mm-hmm. And uh, being a public utility for all developers out there, you know, being able to look up functions and dive into different uh, usages of of open source, whether it's private or public, help us understand the beginnings of this company, what this company was founded upon, and why you actually built it in the first place. As far as the beginnings uh, go, you know, it was Quinn and and myself in in the beginning, and it it really grew out of this itch that we had ourselves as as programmers, which was we felt that a lot of the code that we were writing was somehow duplicative. Either, you know, someone in our company had probably already written it, or there's probably some open source library that we just weren't aware of, or just, you know, couldn't figure out how to use that might save us a lot of time. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, almost every professional programmer um, is aware of how often programmers reinvent the wheel uh, every single day, and we we're trying to think about you know how we could encourage more code reuse. You know what was the thing that was preventing us from going out and discovering the the pieces of code that we knew uh, you know someone somewhere had had already written, but we just uh, it, it was just too difficult to to find that out. Um, and so we started thinking about it, and it and what it came down to was like, well, look, code is is actually really like highly structured. Uh, data. You know, I come from a machine learning background and uh, natural language processing. You know, there's a lot of parallels between natural languages and programming languages. Uh, but the difficult thing about natural languages is that even to dis- uh, construct a, a simple parse tree from, from an everyday English sentence, that's still uh, an open research problem. Whereas with programming languages, you have this thing called a compiler or interpreter that just gives you literally everything you'd ever want to know about a block of code. And mm-hmm. once you have all that data, uh, then you ask yourself, well, can I build a system on top of this that uh, helps me automate uh, or partially automate the task of uh, finding pieces of code, of reading through existing pieces of code, and really like understanding uh, that piece of code uh, in a way that lets me use it? And so that was kind of the itch that we were, we were scratching. And... Uh, a couple other points of inspiration for us, you know, the stuff that we saw inside of Palantir was definitely um, uh, something that solidified our belief that this was not only a, a problem that um, programmers every, everywhere faced, but it was also a problem that was important to to leaders of, of large uh, businesses. Um, and the other point of inspiration that we took was uh, I had previously uh, you know, done an internship inside of Google, and Google internally actually has this great utility. If you ever meet a software engineer who works uh, in the main Google code base and you ask them uh, what they think about Google code search, I guarantee you they will say it's uh, you know, the best thing since sliced bread. You know, just ask them you know, how many times they use it every day, how often they have it open in some 
browser tab and they'll they'll tell you, you know, 60, 70, even 80% of the time, I just have it open as a reference. Um, and so seeing the value that that provided inside Google and also just missing uh, that tool uh, and not seeing it anywhere else in kind of the, the outside world um, mm-hmm. just made us want to, you know, build something like that, but something that could handle the entire universe of code and uh, kind of empower every individual developer out there to go and take advantage of this uh, giant corpus of human knowledge that is open source code and code inside uh, your company um, and kind of build on the, uh, stand on the shoulders of giants, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Definitely a bit off a big problem in terms of just surface area. I think with things to do, because even once you have the analysis done and you're collecting all the data, I'm sure you guys have some sort of crawler or something that's Mm -hmm. spanning the different code bases and, you know, finding other pieces of code it can go index. Then you have, you know, developers using all these different environments or editors. You have how many languages? Um, Was it just, was ever overwhelming to say, how can we, provide support for all these popular uh, editors and then across all these languages to where we actually can provide a holistic solution for people. Yeah, so that was, that was definitely a, kind of a sticking point in the early days. And one of the first uh, technical hurdles we had to overcome was, you know, how do we do this in a manner that's efficient? You know, how do we make it so that we're not, you know, 10 years from now, we're still writing, you know, the plugin for the umpteenth uh, language that we want to support. And uh, that kind of leads into the creation of uh, SourceLib, which is the open source uh, library that powers a lot of the um, underlying source code analysis that uh, uh, gives you what you see on SourceGraph. And the basic idea of SourceLib is, look, as far as end-user applications are concerned, applications that want to make code explorable, and accessible. So I'm thinking, you know, editor plugins, um, things like Google Code Search or SourceGraph. Uh, most programming languages are basically the same. They, they all have a way to define things uh, and name them and reference those things uh, in some other part of code. So if we can, if we can kind of put the data um, that is the code in, in a form where uh, you just capture kind of like that essential part of it, and it's a, it's a kind of common language agnostic uh, schema, then you can just build your end user application on top of that single uh, schema. And then underneath, you just have to build a bunch of translators from different languages to that schema. Mm-hmm. So that takes it from this problem of having to build a, a specific library or plugin for every combination of editor uh, and language to, okay, now you just have to build a translator for every language to the schema. And then once you have that, uh, you, can, you, can, you can build a, a single application that understands all those languages at once. It's like the adapter pattern for languages. Yeah, exactly. It takes it from a, of o, a o of n squared or O of n times m problem to an, an O of n problem. Right. So that was where you started. And so what I what I would like to find out about is the schema that that it gets translated into. Like, uh, what are the what are the bits and bobs that you guys need for each of these? The normalized version, 
and then how do you store those? Yeah, so the schema it's 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 a graph schema. So you know the the schema is in the name of a, of the company, the source graph. Mm-hmm. It's literally like a graph of source code. Um, and so there's kind of three fundamental uh, concepts in the schema. So one is kind of the the AST node. So this is kind of once you've parsed the code. Mm-hmm. Um, this is like the essence of the code. Like once you have the AST, then you can kind of derive um, every other fact about the code uh, that you need from that. And you can also translate it back to text. Uh, it's, a, it's like the, the perfect, um, it, I, I guess you'd, you could say it's like the, the natural uh, form of, of code as data. And then mm-hmm. in addition to the AST node, um, the things that really let us uh, kind of build useful features on top of it are um, two concepts, a definition and a, a reference. So a definition is just, uh, it's, you know, a function declaration or a, a class declaration um, or a, a variable uh, definition somewhere in code. Uh, it's basically anywhere you define a name in, in code. Mm-hmm. So we extract all those uh, and we, we produce a unique identifier for each that's global to all the code in the world. Um, and then on the other side of the table, you have references. So references is any time uh, one of the names that you define in code is referenced. So it could be a function call. It could be a type reference. It could be a package import. Um, and once you have these two things, definitions and references, uh, that essentially allows you to walk the graph of, of source codes. If you, if you think about the, the things that we do uh, probably hundreds of times per day as developers when we're... Uh, kind of exploring uh, the data set of the code we're working on, it's following forward and backward links. It's either jumping to definition or finding references. Um, and that's kind of the, the bread and butter of what we do, and that's exactly what the, the schema allows you to do. Um, the main difference is that because of that globally unique identifier, you can now do so across all the code in the world um, rather than just the code that's on your local machine. Mm. Which is pretty rad. So SourceLib, open source, MIT license, sourcelib.org. We'll link it up in the show notes. That seems like you've opened up a core piece of your guys' business. Is that not the case? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good library. Um, I would say, you know, for us, it's just something that felt like it should be an open standard because it's going to be useful, I think, for, for a lot of tools beyond just, uh, just SourceGraph. We hope that, yeah. you know, this is one wheel that people shouldn't have to reinvent when they're trying to build great tools for developers. As far as the, uh, the business case is concerned, you know, we really think that the value we're going to provide to companies is scaling this across the entire open source universe and the code inside uh, their company and connecting those two different worlds of code together. So there's a lot of additional um, technology that we built around scaling this, making it super fast, um, across uh, all the code that you might use that is not in SourceLib. SourceLib is kind of the analysis primitive. Mm-hmm. Also seems like a really nice way, and I know people hate when we use the word leverage, but <laughs> um, when, when you take advantage of, well, that sounds bad too, <laughs> but just kind of the open source spirit, right? Where what you have, I mean, especially when you have like an adapter situation where you have all of these uncommon interfaces and what makes your guys' end goal and end product better is more the more adapters that you have. So, for instance, you may not have the time or the capacity to write the Elm 
what do you call them, analyzers or yeah, the language analyzer um, that would conform it to source lib. But you know, the Elm community, when they see, you know, you can use source graph on GitHub and look at the Go code and see what it does. They think, oh, I want that. They're going to get yeah. excited. They might actually build that for you. And then on the other side, you have your editors or your, your, your plugins. And you could have the same situation there. Maybe the Atom community says, why don't we have a source graph for Atom? Yeah. Or something, not source graph, but maybe something that adapts to source lib for Atom. And then they can do that. So it seems like a great business case. Yeah. For what's also beneficial to all of us as open sourcers is, you know, we don't have to be the only ones building this stuff. Yeah, exactly. You know, there's so many use cases out there for a library like that, that, you know, we're not going to be the ones to think of, uh, that someone else is going to think of it. And yeah, that's exactly what happened when we released it. There was, there were a lot of people in the community that kind of reached out and said, you know, Hey, I want to build out support for, uh, you know, this editor or this language. And, uh, it actually helped us on the business side too. You know, one of the, one of the companies that, uh, uses source graph is Twitter. And, um, we're deployed to, you know, Twitter's entire Scala code base. Um, and there, you know, they reached out at a point where we didn't even have Scala support. Um, but one of their engineers uh, wanted this so bad because he, he had also been a previous Google engineer. And so he, he wanted something kind of like Google Code Search. And so they actually built out Scala support as kind of a Hack Week project. And we, we kind of took it from there. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, it's, it's great to have, you know, the source code of your, your product just, you know, publicly available because, you know, speaking as a programmer myself, uh, it's just magical when, um, you know, I use a product, um, and then I can go and see kind of how it works internally. It kind of gets back to, you know, people used to say that like in the old days, you know, with hardware, you know, back in the seventies, um, you know, you'd buy a, an old clock radio or something. Uh, or an old computer and you could just take it apart uh, as a kid and kind of like figure out, map out how everything kind of worked. And that, that's kind of like a magical experience. You know, today it does, it's not really a thing anymore because, you know, hardware is so complex and, you know, who, like some, some pieces of hardware, like even try to prevent you from kind of uh, taking it apart and, and, and seeing how it works. And I just think as, as an engineer, it's just a magical experience where, you know, you buy something, you get a lot of value from it, and then you can just kind of disassemble it and peer inside and, and, and see how it works. Yeah. Or even in this case, make it better. Yeah. A lot of times when we open things up, we can't get them back together yeah. again. But you know, with, <laughs> with, source, with source code, you could always just uh, get reset dash dash hard and then you're, you're right back. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I like the idea that that um, I mean, this is obvious to most listeners, but you know, with this being open, as you mentioned before, like it being an open standard, basically, it's an invitation to the community out there that if if motivated enough, uh, as Twitter was, as you mentioned with Scala, that uh, that in a weekend they could run a hack or something like that, or a hackathon internally or whatever, and build out their own piece, mm-hmm. and it could possibly actually be adopted into the the main repository or whatever but like having that motivation if you're motivated enough and having open source you're able to build out your own thing based on that or build on top of it if you wanted to yeah and it's it's just like a an open invitation to to do that i'm kind of curious though the you know whenever you search with source graph or do any of the stuff that you do like this being you know being able to search a function or whatever 
um, what sources are behind source graph? Like what do you comb? How do you, how does that work? Uh, so we, we crawl, um, a lot of the major open source, uh, code repositories. So GitHub, Bitbucket, um, that's currently we, we crawl mainly like, uh, fully formed code repositories. Uh, in the future, we might also want to do, uh, snippets, um, that are just found in blog posts and Q and A forums around the internet. But right now it's, it's just, uh, kind of like the go-to places where, uh, most open source code is hosted. Did you have to do anything special to get access to that or blessed API access or anything like that? Any sort of relationship you have with uh, the, the code hosts? No, nothing formal. Um, so we, you know, we hit their APIs for some metadata, but uh, by and large, we mostly just uh, uh, hit the, the, the Git API. So just like Git clone, mm-hmm. um, that kind of thing. Uh, and that's nice for us because... You know, a lot of companies uh, don't use uh, uh, like a, a well-known code host internally. They just have a Git repository. And so you can just point us to any, uh, you know, Git clone URL and we'll be able to index that code. So whenever you do that, are you actually pulling down the full repo? What's, walk us through what actually happens whenever you ping a source, you pull back the, you know, the, the whole schema translation you talked about before with the trend with, uh, with uh, source lib. What happens then? Like, what kind of data do you actually store about a repository and the, and the code that's in it? Yeah, so it's all kind of ephemeral. So, you know, if you give us access uh, to your repository, um, every time we detect a new commit, we uh, fetch that commit, we clone the repository, and then we just run sourcelib as kind of a command line tool in a, a Docker container, and that outputs uh, the, the data in the schema that we expect. Um, and then pushes that to an API endpoint uh, in the Sourcegraph web application. And underneath the hood, that then you know, deserializes that and then stores it in uh, one of several kind of under, underlying database uh, systems that we have. And uh, I guess I could, so with Sourcelib, uh, it actually, the way Sourcelib is structured is that it's, it's kind of got this, uh, uh, core orchestrator um, part of it, which kind of defines the schema uh, and uh, is responsible for coordinating, uh, you know, the, the interface between source and the outside world. But underneath the hood, it just shells out to a bunch of um, different command line tools. Uh, we call them tool chains, and each of the tool chains is responsible for um, translating from from a specific language to the thing that uh, source lib expects. Mm. You mentioned blog posts potentially being extended to this is there i'm thinking back in the day of like micro formats is there some sort of spec that you plan on doing that might extend from source lib or whatever or some sort of schema to adopt in terms of html some sort of fragmenting to mm. to uh to make that more possible like hey you know you scan any blog or any medium post or whatever and you auto discover anybody who wants to sort of offer their code samples up to source lib or sorry i guess uh source graph not source lib yeah um what's your plan there pre-tags <laughs> simple as that <laughs> i guess yeah so you know we we used to have this thing called source boxes that was really cool it basically allowed you to embed an interactive code snippet uh inside your blog post um the only problem was the way we implemented it was uh is this like JavaScript thing that you'd embed. So you actually couldn't embed it in a Medium post or um, like any other blog site unless you, you had the ability to post uh, scripts um, to the site. 
So we kind of discontinued that, but we've been thinking about this a lot. And uh, I think there's a couple of directions uh, we could take. Um, if any of your listeners are, are, are bloggers, I'd be curious to hear uh, how useful they'd find this. But uh, so one, one direction we could take is, you know, you give us like any snippet of code uh, and we'll kind of uh, parse it and emit HTML with links uh, to the documentation and usage examples of whatever you call um, on SourceGraph. Granted, you know, when you send us the code, you'll have to give us enough context so that our analyzer can actually figure out what code your thing is calling. Like if you just type, you know, uh, http.newrequest um, and just give us that one liner, that's probably not a, enough context for us to resolve that to, you know, the, the new request uh, method in the standard library. But if you give us, you know, the import at the top uh, and a couple other lines of context, I think that should be good enough. And uh, the, other, the other angle we're thinking of coming at it is we have this Chrome extension now that uh, you can install in Chrome. And what it does is as you're browsing code on GitHub, it uh, hits the SourceGraph API and gives you jump to def and find refs and symbol search uh, right in the GitHub UI. And a lot of people really like that. It also does that in pull requests. Uh, and that's, that's something, uh, it's, it's really useful for a code review, just like being able to jump to def when you're reading through like a, a large code review is so helpful. Um, but we're thinking about extending that to code snippets too, so that you know, if you have the Chrome extension installed, uh, let's say you, know, you, you come across some post on Stack Overflow that has a, a lengthy snippet that references uh, some function, um, and now you want to figure out what that function does, the Chrome extension could link that snippet to code. Um, so you can just you know, hover over a reference to see the documentation and click it to jump straight to uh, where it's defined if you want to go diving into the source. What exactly, in terms of SourceGraph, the product, and you can help us differentiate free versus paid or open versus licensed as well, but like, what is it in terms of how I use it today as a developer? Is it plugins? You, you got the Chrome thing? Uh, do I go to your website? Give us the lay of the land. It's, uh, it's free for open source and always will be. If you're using it inside a company, you can use it for free up to, I think uh, the limit is 15 people now. And after that, there's uh, kind of, you know, the standard per seat pricing model. Um, as far as how you can consume it, um, we've actually experimented with a, a couple of ways you can consume it. So the most popular way of consuming it is just going to sourcegraph.com and using it as a web application that gives you, you know, global, uh, global uh, search, um, global usage examples. So you get usage examples pulled from uh, every open source library that might use a function uh, and, uh, you know, a bunch of other stuff that's uh, useful in the application. The other alternative is some people prefer a native application. So kind of the, the same way that, you know, Slack, the Slack uh, native app is essentially the, the web application in a native frame. The SourceGraph desktop app is, is essentially the same experience, but in a native frame. Uh, but with the added uh, benefit of direct editor integration. So if you install a, a plugin, um, it'll add some shortcuts to your editor that make it super simple to look up stuff in, in SourceGraph. So as you're coding, SourceGraph will kind of like preload uh, the, the documentation and usage examples it thinks uh, are relevant to the code that you're writing. And uh, so you can quickly alt-tab over and, uh, and get the answer to, you know, how do I use this function in, in a split second? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then there's a Chrome extension, which, uh, you know, if, if, if you find yourself reading code on GitHub a lot, um, just install it. It's, uh, I mean, I'm biased, obviously, but I think it's, <laughs> it's a magical experience to like, you know, click into code on GitHub and like everything's just linked. Like you can hover over for documentation um, and uh, click, click on something. And even if it's defined in a completely separate repository, you know, you're there. What about language support? Yeah, so language support, we support officially Java and Go. Um, we have Python deployed uh, to private beta. JavaScript's also in private beta, but we're not confident enough in the quality of those yet to, to make those public. Mm -hmm. um, but if you sign up for the beta, we'll try to get you on as, as quickly as possible. And then we have a couple other languages um, in the pipeline. And we have uh, Scala inside uh, some companies, but that's not public yet either. Well, what's up with that, man? We got to get that like Twitter added Scala support. <laughs> we got to get that for the rest of us, right? Yeah, yeah, we're we're uh, like you know the Twitter dev team has been great uh, working with us on that. Um, we're just kind of going through the 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 process with them right now. I'm sure there are contra contractual agreements uh, with that, yeah. with that particular customer. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, very good. I think that helps us understand exactly what it exists in terms of how we could use it today. And I think we're going to tee up our next break. But I do have a question for you with regards to all the data that you're capturing. I think we should also talk about private source versus open source, but you're collecting a lot of data. I'm sure you're well aware of, you know, GitHub's recent push into public data with the BigQuery, and I'm guessing that Sourcegraph has some overlap there, perhaps. So let's not answer that now, but let's just take a break and we'll answer it on the other side. Every Saturday morning, we ship an email called Changelog Weekly. It's our editorialized take on what happened this week in open source and software development. It's not generated by a machine. There's no algorithms involved. It's me, it's Jared, hand curating this email, keeping up to date with the latest headlines, links, videos, projects, and repos. And to get this awesome email in your inbox every single week, head to changelog.com weekly and subscribe. All right, we are back with Biong Liu, and we are talking about source graph, source code, all that good stuff. Biong, we mentioned before the break that uh, you are collecting a lot of data. Yep. I like how you think about code as data. Seems like a very powerful way to think because you end up with tooling like this. And recently, uh, GitHub and Google made a big announcement around BigQuery and GitHub's public data set where they have added not just the commits and issues, I believe it was previously, Yep. they now actually have full source code snapshots in BigQuery, queryable. And that was something that has been pretty cool and uh, opened up a lot of opportunities to answer certain questions amongst open source people like us. Yep. I'm thinking that you guys have very similar type data and perhaps there's some opportunities there with regards to reporting, analysis, and what have you. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, totally. Um, first off, I, th I think it's awesome that uh, GitHub and, and Google uh, released that data. It's a really interesting data set. Um, and there have been a lot of great blog posts written about that uh, that have been just like really interesting to read about you know, certain patterns you can find in, in open source. Um, I think you know the data that that we're collecting or that we're recording is the, the, the main way that it, it's different from that is uh, my understanding is that the GitHub dump is, is basically kind of like a, a dump of source code as, as text. Uh, whereas 
Um, on the back end with Sourcegraph, you know, we, we actually go and parse out all the code. So we store, you know, every function definition uh, and method call and things like that separately as a kind of a distinct node in the graph. Um, so there are certain, you know, operations that might uh, have a less, uh, a lower like false positive rate uh, on top of that data set. Um, that having been said, you know, we thought a little bit about the, the use case of like, hey, you know, I'm a key open source author or I'm a senior engineer at my company. I want to go and analyze uh, the, the code base um, to, to see, you know, what kind of high level patterns I can discover. But at the moment, we're, we're very focused on uh, building for the day-to-day -day use case of developers. So helping developers uh, answer the most common everyday questions they have uh, in seconds. Uh, whereas the type of analysis you would do with uh, th that larger kind of data set, um, in my view, is kind of something that you would kind of do every once in a while as, as a senior engineer, I think. Mm. Also, you have to be motivated too because it costs money. Not that that's like a, such a huge factor, but obviously, if you're going to pay per query or pay, you know, per size of queries, then you're going to want to think a little closer, yeah. you know, to to what you're actually doing. It's probably going to sure. you know be a a barrier to that entry. Not so much to pay for it, but you know, if you had a general question, you might want to ask, you know, big query in this data right. set. But generally, you got to be pretty motivated because you have to pay for it. Yeah. It's a disincentive whenever you have like pay per use, yeah, like querying because like every time you do it, you're even if it's a small sum, there's like something in us as humans where we're like, oh, I'm I gotta pay that. Oh, I'll just figure it out myself. You know, where when you're coding, like you want all that access at all times, and you don't want it to be thinking, is this lookup worth it to me? I guess the other question might be on the side of that, Jared, is like, so since BigQuery obviously is a pay tool and searching the GitHub data set on, on BigQuery is, is part of that. You know, the question for Beyond might be, how do you make it free for one and how do you make it fast like you have? Like, I think Brian Kettleson mentioned in the GoTime episode we talked about a couple of times on this show so far was he actually had to uninstall something because it was a little slow and you're, you're aware of that. But for the most part, it's pretty fast to, to get these lookups back. Yeah, so it... It really, I think, comes down to how we store the data. Um, you know, if we were storing all the code in the world as a text, it would actually be, you know, pretty expensive to kind of comb through all that text uh, and try to parse it with regular expressions um, and return answers in a live fashion. Um, but, you know, the, the kind of high-level way to describe it is we're taking advantage of structure in the data to make the, the problem of querying it faster. So, you know, one of the reasons that search is a lot faster is we don't have to index every single uh, token in, you know, a string constant uh, or uh, a doc string. We can just scope our search to the, the functions that we know are actual, you know, function definitions. And so that, that reduces the quantity of data that we have to sift through by a lot. Um, and there's other sorts of gains that we, we can get on the back end because... Uh, you know, all the data that's coming into us is is in the source lib schema as opposed to just this, you know, file with a bunch of text in it. Mm. You still have to be connected to the source, though. Is there any chance at like offline support or I'm thinking of times of, you know, bad latency, you're on an airplane, times where, you know, you don't want to lose that customer who you want. You don't want to lose Brian. You know, he's got his, <laughs> his he's got his Vim open. He's got his source graph. And he's your customer, and now he's like, ah, this is just 
either not either it's too slow right now or it's not available. <laughs> These are probably things you guys are thinking about. Yeah, that's that's a that's an avenue that we're thinking about with desktop is uh, just kind of getting the code that you're writing real time and getting that into source graph so that when you pop over to ask a question, it kind of has the data ready. But I do think that's a little bit more of a nice to have uh, use case just because, you know, if you're on an airplane programming, there's no Wi-Fi, then at that point, you probably can't even look up documentation if the documentation is hosted online mm-hmm. um, or, you know, read the code on on GitHub. So at that point, you're kind of, you know, you're in the mode where hopefully you're not having to rely on external libraries that you don't uh, that you don't know as yeah. much. And you're just you, you can be. Like I try to, whenever I'm like uh, about to take a plane ride, I try to think of like, okay, hmm, what's the most kind of like isolated coding task I could do? Like the thing that I can just like, you know, be in the zone for, you know, five hours um, and just hit the standard library for, yeah. Yeah. I'm with that. I'm also against it to a certain degree because pushback, I moved to the country and I have, uh, Adam, Adam can attest to this. I have bad internet. And so mm. um, I often find times where it's painful to work online. Mm. So sometimes I'll just go completely offline. And so in, that, in those cases, it's similar to like you when you're getting ready for your, for your plane ride. Um, you know, there are tools like on the Mac, there's an app called Dash, which is a paid app. If you yeah, are Dash on the Mac, awesome. it's yep. a great one. And, you know, it's, it's a tool that many people are happy to pay for because it will offline all those and make them searchable and stuff. So, um, and I, I used to be swimming in bandwidth. And so I was like, who cares guys? But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's very narcissistic of me, but now that I have the problem, I experienced it firsthand, like having that is definitely a nice to have, but for some people it's like, it could make or break a customer. And so I would say like, think about ways that even if it's just, if it's not the global source graph, right. If it's not like everybody's code, but it's at least either like yeah. hot code, like things I've been looking at recently or my, you know, local repository stuff. I think having that would be a, a really interesting extension of what you guys currently do. That's true. Yeah. You can actually use like most people use uh, slash code or slash projects, you know, where they keep all their source code locally. And you can even yeah. kind of crawl locally one particular directory or a set of directories based on a config. Totally. That's actually, that's actually a great point. You know, <laughs> Like one one of the things it's a good that, feature. Let's do that. You know, I like one of, one of the things that we really want to make possible. Uh, you know, you're in the country; the internet is terrible there. Another place uh, that is terrible is uh, you know the developing world, and there's a lot of people who mm-hmm. uh, you know could become you know great programmers and contribute to you know the global uh, graph of of knowledge and software, um, but they're kind of like hamstrung by you know poor connectivity. Yeah. Um, so like just kind of thinking out loud, like one of the things that we could do is, you know, if you have code that you're working on on your local machine, uh, you know, source graph is smart enough to understand what exactly you're depending on. Cause we can actually go and, you know, parse the build file and figure out like, these are the, the repositories that you're, you're using. Mm-hmm. And once we had that, we could just kind of like prefetch all the data for those things and store it locally and make that accessible. It'd be kind of like the, the equivalent of, Google Maps, uh, like save offline maps feature. So, right. you know, if you know you're going to go to like a zone of poor connectivity or if, if you just happen to live in, in one, uh, maybe, it, maybe you could rely on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, a, it's not an easy problem to solve. But uh, one thing that I've realized, and I think this is what you guys are going for with any developer-focused product, is 
anytime you can make a developer say, I love source graph, they're going to, you know, you're winning. Yeah. And every time I have to go offline and I can still work because of that dash app, I say to myself, oh, I love this thing. <laughs> and so, it, and so like, it's rare, right? Like most of the time yeah. I'm online and everything's fine. But when I have to use it and it's there for me, that's when you turn like normal customers into customers that love your stuff. So, yeah, totally. And, and you know, you know what, like back when I, I first started like programming on a computer, I remember, you know, in those days I was writing mostly Java and uh, mostly the standard library. You could just pull all those document, you could just pull all that documentation down have it on your local machine. So even if you're going to like someplace where you didn't have the Wi-Fi password, uh, it was all there. And it was almost in some ways uh, like a nicer experience because you didn't have the distraction of, you know, mm. the internet <laughs> uh, <laughs> while you're trying to code. I feel like these days it's like, you know, so many resources we look at are, you know, kind of in the browser that it's mm -hmm. so easy to get kind of get off on a tangent. You know, you're like, you try to look into you know, how to do this one thing and then maybe the same forum post links to this other library and, right. you know, you click on some other link and sooner or later you're like on Hacker News and you're like, right. how did I get here? Shave any yak. You still have... <laughs> You still have Twitter open in a tab and they have yeah. that thing that updates the page title with the number of notifications you have. And so you don't have to view it. You're just there in a tab. Oh, I have three notifications on Twitter. Yep. And then you're just, it's an hour later. You haven't done anything. Yep. Speak for yourself, Jared. <laughs> so some, somebody else told me they did that. Last time. I don't know. <laughs> Might've been me. No Maybe. personal experience. <laughs> so beyond you, uh, you mentioned that you've got this background in machine learning, that that's a, a thing you love, obviously. And Jared mentioned that uh, you're obviously collecting a lot of data. You think of code as data, and that's, that's a cool uh, way to look at this, obviously. So yeah. you must have, not that this isn't a big enough plan, you know, what you're doing with Sourcegraph, but you must have even bigger plans on top of all this knowledge, this wealth of knowledge you're ultimately building for the developer community. Can you at all share the future for us? Like, what's over the horizon? What's something no one knows about? that you can at least tease us with, with what you're thinking about for the future of Sourcegraph. Yeah, I'm happy to spitball. I just want to declare up front that, you know, as of now, we're not working on um, any sort of machine learning related thing. Like as, as a person with a machine learning background, I, it kind of rubs me the wrong way. You know, a lot of companies say they're doing, uh, they have some fancy machine learning algorithm and really it's, it's just mechanical Turk underneath the, the hood. Um, and uh, I just want to make it clear that, you know, Sourcegraph is, is not doing that when we, if and when we do use machine learning, uh, we want to have a very clear uh, use case uh, in mind. Now, that having been said, uh, one of the things that got me really interested in this problem in the first place was, you know, as a, a person who likes data and, uh, you know, thinking about how to model it, uh, the data set of all the code in the world um, is... It's got two properties. One, it's extremely interesting because it's it's such a valuable data set, and there's so many uh, there's so much information uh, that's embedded in it. And two, it's relatively unexplored. You know, the, uh, there's not an, a lot of uh, tools that are specifically designed for reading and understanding uh, that data. Most of the tools are are optimized for you know creating the data, you know, actually writing code. And so, you know, from the get-go, this has been something that's been in the back of uh, our minds. Um, you know, just, just to name a, a few things that we could do uh, after we've collected the data set, um, kind of, you know, half-baked ideas. 
Uh, one is kind of uh, intelligent uh, autocomplete. So, you know, we think of autocomplete as this thing that, you know, it just queues off of compiler uh, signals and it gives you a list of, you know, all the possible tokens that you could possibly, that are, you know, syntactically, um, semantically correct uh, to use at a given point in a file. But what if you could actually go beyond that and suggest, you know, a variable name or suggest uh, a parameter value based on the surrounding context? Now, that prediction problem is a lot fuzzier. You probably won't be able to get that um, just from heuristics and uh, what the compiler tells you alone. That's probably something that you want to learn. Like, okay, I've seen this pattern uh, before in code, uh, this pattern, the AST. Uh, and in the past, you know, when I've seen the 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 token, you know, read, for example, and now this this user is calling some function that uh, reads a file, or uh, sorry, writes a file, and what if they're passing you know, the wrong value of the per permissions flag? They're setting it to you know 0666 instead of you know 0777. Um, that's something that I think uh, this probably uh, given enough data, you could probably learn some interesting patterns there for you know. What uh, what things to flag to the user that hey maybe you're hitting this API incorrectly because you're using it in a different way than the hundred other people out there in open source use it. Um, so that's kind of like you know one one half baked idea we have in the back of our minds. Uh, another problem which kind of related to that is in order to do that prediction problem well, uh, a sub problem you kind of have to solve is the scoring problem. So given um, you know, machine learning, the, the way you'd phrase it is, you know, given this piece of code, uh, give me the probability that this piece of code uh, exists or is valid. Um, so you give it a likelihood score. And uh, what that tells you is if you see a piece of unlikely code, like a, co a, co a piece of code that your model thinks is like, oh, that's kind of interesting, uh, more likely than not, uh, it's an error. Um, and you can flag that sort of thing. So you think about running this model. You, tr you train this model on all the, the code in the world, um, and you discover kind of uh, associations like, you know, associations of, of specific words and doc strings and, you know, parameter values and, and, and function calls. And then you can actually, uh, once you've trained it, you run it on all the code in the world, and you can kind of give a, a printout to people saying like, hey, you know, in addition to the linter errors that you already get, um, here are some places where, you know, you might want to think about how, you, how you're calling this API or, hey, you know, senior engineer, like one of, one of your jobs is to make sure that, you know, the other people on the team aren't shooting themselves in the foot or incurring a lot of tech debt. Here's a daily printout of, of hotspots that you might want to scan uh, that, that our model kind of discovered. So, you know, those, both those ideas are, are very ha half-baked, um, haven't really explored them uh, uh, seriously yet. But I think, you know, given the structure of this data set and how novel it is, uh, there's bound to be some great low-hanging fruit uh, in there. Yeah. Just as an aside, I find it amusing somewhat that you were in research and, and doing machine learning uh, and you left it to, to get more into the industry side of things. Yeah. And you flash forward to 2016. And like, it's, it's practically the most buzzword term of the <laughs> entire industry. It's like, everybody wants to do, are we doing machine learning? Do we have any machine learning going on? <laughs> so you couldn't yeah. actually be more industry right now. It's uh yeah, it's, you know, I, I, this, but I think it's both good and bad. Like, I'm glad that people are interested in machine learning. I think it can add a lot of value to a lot of products. Yeah. Um, but you know, along with the, with the, the good also comes the hype. 
<laughs> and right. it, it's kind of funny to watch, you know? Absolutely. Well, let's shift gears a little bit and let's talk about licensing. So we have a few different projects coming out of Source Graph. Of course, we've mentioned Source Lib itself, uh, which is MIT license. You also have some cool new things like CheckUp, uh, which we can talk about in a minute in detail. Mm -hmm. uh, that's also MIT license. But you guys commissioned a creation of a new open source license called FairSource. Mm -hmm. And you even hired a lawyer uh, to write it. Can you give us the background on FairSource, why it needed to exist, and, and what your thoughts are there? Yeah, totally. So just to just to be clear, we don't consider FairSource open source, and we want to make sure that uh, you know people understand we're not trying to pawn FairSource off as, as an open source license. We think it's okay. a separate and distinct from, from open source, uh, but we do think it has a place in the world. So... Um, the reason that we we uh, created the fair source license is that you know in open source uh, you kind of have this problem, and a lot of companies building open source technology have this problem where you know you want to build out something great, you know, a utility that people really rely on, and you want to make the source code publicly available um, because it just feels like the right thing to do as a developer. You know, as a developer, if I'm curious, I want to be able to kind of peek underneath the hood and figure out how something works. Um, nothing's worse than when you encounter some bug and the thing that you're using is a black box and you have no way of fixing at all or even understanding what's going wrong. Uh, and so we wanted to make the, the source code publicly available, but at the same time, we wanted to build a sustainable business on top of this because we think that uh, this is a really valuable problem we're solving. It's going to add a lot of value uh, to both technology companies and non-technology companies alike. And uh, we think that it's it's fair for um, you know people investing time and effort into building these things to be compensated for the value that they're providing. And uh, when we looked around, you know, the, the classic kind of way to do this um, is is kind of the dual licensing mo model, where you know you release it as open source under some like really restrictive license, like a, a GPL or um, AGPL, and then you have kind of a separate commercial license. Um, but that just didn't seem like a great fit for us. It also, I mean, if you talk to lawyers in industry, there's actually a lot of concerns around that, you know, just like, oh, you know, what if we accidentally, you know, pull in the GPL part of your code base and we're not technically paying for it. And it just, mm -hmm. it, there's a lot of like fear, uncertainty, and doubt from, uh, the industry side of things. Um, and, we kind of looked around and said, well, can we kind of take some things from open source and take some things from uh, closed source and, uh, and, and make a license that lets us release the, uh, the source code publicly, uh, but at the same time, you know, if a company like Twitter comes along and wants to use our product, uh, we, can, we can charge them a, a fair price uh, for the value that we're providing to their development team. And so we, we kind of looked around, uh, we, we asked a bunch of open source contributors, you know, what they thought about the idea. Um, we were really worried that we'd get a lot of pushback um, from people because I think, you know, a lot of people, and rightly so, they have concerns about um, companies coming along and trying to cast things as open source that aren't open source. Mm -hmm. um, but what we found among open source authors was actually kind of this latent uh, frustration at the fact that they're they're kind of investing so many hours of their lives. Uh, you know, a lot of these people have families and and kids in addition to day jobs, uh, and they're investing uh, time and energy into these projects. And companies are using those projects to build things that 
make a lot of money and uh, the people actually building the underlying technology uh, don't see a penny. And, uh, you know, that's bad because if you're building something valuable for the world, you should be able to make a living off of it. And so, you know, talking to those contributors kind of gave us the confidence to kind of keep looking around. And then we, we ended up meeting um, this, uh, this lawyer by the name of Heather Meeker, um, who I think was involved in drafting the Mozilla public license and a couple uh, of other open source uh, licenses. She's, she's a lawyer who specifies in, in open source licensing law, and she had actually been thinking about this same problem because, you know, she works with a lot of open source contributors as well, and she, she heard all the same frustrations, and it was kind of like very serendipitous. Um, we met them through, you know, a, a mutual friend of the company, and she said, you know, I, I would love to take this on as a project. And we said, that would be great. Can you dr- draft up something simple um, that we can use uh, to, to release our source code publicly, but still retain the ability to, to build a business on top of it? And that's kind of how uh, FairSource was born. Adam, uh, we mentioned that Beyond has pretty much hit for the cycle on the changelog network, but uh, he actually hasn't <laughs> been on request for commits yet. And, Not yet. Uh, <laughs> this sounds like a good topic for for our brand new show with Nadia and Michael. Yeah, that's with uh, Nadia Ekbal, right? She was on the, the show a couple of weeks back. Yeah, she was on the show. We had her back. Uh, we had her on January. the changelog all the way back in January. Yeah. And then yeah. since then, we were uh, we enjoyed talking to her so much. And uh, we told her if she ever wanted to do a podcast, uh, she should come to us. And she did. And we've been working with her and Michael Rogers, who's the... Is he the head of the, well, what is he in the Node Foundation, Adam? Uh, he something? is, um, what's he, he's uh, something for the Node Foundation, I'm trying to remember, community manager, that's what it is, community, community manager, manager for the Node Foundation, yeah. the Node.js Foundation. So the entire show is based around the human side of open source and sustainability and licensing and governance and, yeah. and all such things. I think, yeah. I'm sure Nadia and Michael have a lot of opinions about fair source one way or the other, whereas... I do not have very many opinions. Adam, <laughs> yeah. what do you think? I would say, <laughs> well, I don't know. You got pretty, you got some opinions too, but maybe their opinions run deeper. Yeah. They're probably more informed, whereas <laughs> mine are just like gut, gut reactions. Yes. Like, oh, yeah. this is great. Or, oh, this is terrible. Yes. I would also say too that uh, they actually have Heather Meeker on the list. And I think it would make sense, obviously, to add someone from Sourcecraft to that, that uh, conversation too. It hasn't been scheduled yet, but, uh, I mean, this story is really fascinating in terms of like, especially how you said it's not to replace open source. It's not, it is not open source. And I think that's a good um, caveat to add to that even before mentioning it like you did, because some, especially like me, I know that whenever I first looked at it, I thought that this was a new type of open source. And, you know, yeah, you, you, you explain that portion of it makes it a lot more clear that you're not doing that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not open source at all. Yeah. <laughs> so... I guess the the plan for this license for you in in this case was to be a license for your core application. Is that uh, that's not open source yet, though, right? No, it's it's still a private repository at this point. We want to release the 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 public code uh, the code publicly soon, uh, but there's just some cleanup things that we want to do before we kind of are comfortable uh, sharing the code with the world. So hopefully in the next, uh, couple of weeks, it'll be, it'll be online. You can look it look it up on GitHub. Have you done much discussing or talking out there on the internet anywhere about fair source and the motivations behind it and the plan for it? 
Yeah, we've, we've talked to, there's been some interest from open source authors. A journalist from Wired reached out a couple months back and my co-founder Quinn spoke to him and I think wrote up an article. Um, but it's not been kind of a core focus of the company. Like the main focus right now is just building an awesome product for, for developers. Um, it's just, this is just a, a means for us to release the product in a way that we think is, is uh, kind of the, the right way to do it for developers. Any common myths about this license you want to debunk right now? Yeah, I think uh, the main myth is that it's, we're trying to cast it as like an open source license. Um, it's, it's not open source. Uh, we've tried to make that clear from day one. I think maybe it's just the fact that it's called like blank source. Uh, people confuse it. Um, we're not trying to kill open source. We love open source. Uh, I personally have gotten a lot of value from open source software. You know, I, I wouldn't have been able as a curious, you know, teenager, I wouldn't have been able to dive into the repositories that I dove into if things weren't out in the open. Um, I use Linux as, as uh, my, uh, programming environment, uh, and, the the worst thing would be for this to like lead to the the demise of the open source world. Um, the main goal is just to let us release uh, our code in a way that we we think it should be released, and also give um, you know other uh, code authors out there a way to you know actually see some of the value um, financially in terms of what they provide to companies that use their their software. And I guess to, to that end, it, it, the license does include a clause saying, like, it's actually a parameterized license, meaning, it, it, you know, you can call it FairSource 10 or FairSource Fair 15. And what that means is uh, any company that's below the size of, you know, 15 people can use your, your software for free. Um, and it's only after, you know, you hit that magical limit that then they need to, to acquire a separate commercial license from you. I'm glad you mentioned the, that number there because I was actually thinking about that. It's in my notes to mention, but I almost forgot. So how, <laughs> how in the world do you, do you track that? I was thinking like when I first read that, I'm thinking that's great, but how do you track usages of it? You have to kind of operate on this honor system. And then two, mm -hmm. how do you create a conduit to get paid? Is it just a known way to pay someone? Like how do, do they say, hey, I'm honest and I'm, I've used 16 of the 15 licenses and I've got to pay for license number 16 or something. How does it work? How do you plan to work? Yeah, so we're not, we're not trying to make money off of individual programmers or, you know, super small teams uh, working for, you know, mom and pop uh, coding shops or, you know, small companies. Uh, the experience at Palantir has taught us that, you know, the, the problem that we're solving is valuable enough that, you know, it's the large and established companies that will pay us uh, a lot of money to make their development teams more efficient. And so that's, that's where we, we think the business is. Um, as for, you know, the rest of the world, we just, you know, want to make this accessible to as many, uh, developers as possible because we think, you know, we built a, a, a tool that's great for, for learning and, and understanding code. What about from the generalized license perspective? Like if I use FairSource 10, for example, mm -hmm. how do I, uh, enable those who use it, uh, companies, you know, once they get to 11, 12, 13, how do I enable them to one, be honest and say, hey, I've used it uh, with, you know, 13 or 14 users versus the 10. So I need to pay for a few licenses or whatever. Yeah. And then how do I communicate to them how to pay? Is it just sort of on the license 
person who uses it to, 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 to figure that out? Or is it something that's actually baked into the license? Yeah, right now it's, you know, it's kind of like a, the, the honor system uh, right now. But you know, the way we think about it is that there's no legitimate company in the world that would uh, willingly violate a software license just so they could save, uh, you know, a few bucks, $10, yeah. a few bucks a month um, uh, on, a piece of, on a piece of code. Um, and as for the ones who are illegitimate and, you know, uh, skirt the law, you're probably not going to make, that's, not, that's probably, you're not, you're those not going to customers build, anyways. Yeah. You're not going to build a giant business off of those, uh, those people anyways. So that was just some knee jerk uh, questions I had when I read it. I'm like, okay, so how do you enforce the honor system and how do you get paid? Cause great. You got the license and great that you actually put that there, but how do you enforce it? Cause if you don't enforce it or at least prescribe how you should operate around it, then, then, uh, no one's going to follow it. And I was yeah. just thinking, is that something that you've thought through? Is that something you have some suggestions on? And I'm just curious. That's, that's a smaller subject, though, but just curious. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the future, we think that there can be a more automated mechanism. Uh, you know, if we're thinking from, uh, from the Sourcegraph perspective, if you're using something like Sourcegraph that understands the dependencies you start uh, pulling in through your code, you can have, like, an automated alert that tells you, like, hey, you started using this thing that has... Uh, fair source license attached to it if you you know if more than you know 10 people start using it then uh, you should pay this person um, but that's just kind of like vague stuff that we haven't really uh, built out yet well Biang, we're getting uh, close to low on time but we did want to touch on checkup we mentioned it earlier in the call and mm-hmm. want to give you a chance to get that out there a new piece of open source by Sourcegraph, and i believe built in collaboration with friend of the show matt holt Mm-hmm. Uh, of the Caddy web server. He's also been on the changelog. He's also been on GoTime. Yep. So tell us about checkup, simple uptime monitoring, uh, distributed, self-hosted health checks and status pages. What is it and why is it? <laughs> yeah. So I'll, I'll kind of start with the why. Um, okay. The, the problem that it, it kind of solves was, you know, like, like, like many web services, uh, source graph, uh, uses an uptime monitoring service to, to make sure that our site is up and to make sure that someone gets paged when uh, things go down. And uh, we kind of ran into a couple of pains that were kind of surprising using the standard uptime monitoring services. Um, the, the biggest pain for us was just like, it was so hard to use the UI of these things. Like you think it'd be the simplest UI in the world. Like you got some URLs that you want to hit and I put them in and you tell me whether they're green or, or, or not. Uh, but a lot of the UIs just take um, like multiple seconds to load a single page. Um, and you're sitting there as an engineer, you know, who, like efficiency is the most important uh, thing. Um, and you're sitting there waiting for a page to load. Uh, you can't help but appreciate the irony that the thing that you're monitoring that's monitoring your site to make sure that your latencies are below, you know, one second itself is taking like seven seconds to load. Um, that coupled with the fact that there was no way to programmatically update um, the, the endpoints for a lot of services or no easy way, I should say. And that kind of got us thinking like, well, you know, this is uptime monitoring. It's not rocket science. It's actually like dirt simple. Um, ideally, we should be able to run these things as like unit tests. Like, wouldn't it be great if I could actually run uptime checks in development just to make sure that, you know, that obviously you still need it in production in case some weird production issue comes up. But a lot of times you break an endpoint just because you pushed a bug 
that breaks a page that you could catch in CI or, or development. And so we got to thinking, and you know, we tried really, we really did not want to build this ourselves. We we're like, surely there must be something out there uh, that does this the way we want it to. Uh, but we looked around and uh, just couldn't find anything. So um, we kind of, you know, Matt Hold is is kind of a friend of Sourcegraph as well, and we talked to him from time to time. And uh, he kind of seen the the had had his own frustrations of, of this sort, um, and I'm sure he's heard a lot from folks who use the Caddy web server. Um, and so we got kind of got talking, and he was like, you know, I've been thinking about building this thing, and we we're like, well, we'd we'd love to sponsor you. We would definitely use it. And so he went and uh, built this library uh, for us. That's also a command line tool, and what what it essentially does is it. You can run it as a command line tool, which means you can run it basically like on any, you know, EC2 or uh, Google Cloud instance. And what it does is it just, you give it a set of endpoints, you know, programmatically, it's some config file that you can version in with your code. Uh, you run this command, it hits all the endpoint, and then it, it uploads the data that it records to uh, an S3 bucket. Hmm. And then there's a separate command that pulls up a dashboard that pulls the data from that S3 bucket. And uh, that's the thing that tells you whether your site is up or down. And so you can run the, 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 the uptime command from you know, any EC2 instances or any set of you know, geographically uh, distributed EC2 instances and pull uptime data from all across the world, push it to an S3 bucket, and then checking your uptime is, is as simple as uh, running a command to display a, a dashboard. Um, and as a side benefit, because it's so simple, you can also run it in CI or even development. I love that. You you got a problem. Maybe you don't have enough time to do it yourself. Matt Holt has some time, and he also would like to solve said problem. And a beautiful <laughs> thing happens. Spawn, spawn, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's the great new world of open source where we do have businesses that are being run around open source and being successful. And we can sponsor little things that uh, can benefit ourselves, but also benefit the whole community. So that's really cool. Yeah, totally. So that's a uh, source graph.github.io slash checkup. We'll link that one up in the show notes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, very cool. So is that kind of a thing that's just, uh, it's said and done, you guys launched it or is there actually continued development? Do you have future plans for checkup or is it just, uh, it's out there and use it? Yeah, I think so it's, it's out there. It's usable. It's kind of like a minimal viable tool right now. Um, so we're actively looking for other open source contributions. Is already we've actually been overwhelmed by the the sheer amount of interest. It, I guess it turns out that a, a lot of other people have had similar frustrations, uh, but people have already submitted pull requests. You know, one person added the ability to check for you know TCP endpoints as opposed to HTTP endpoints, and mm-hmm. we've gotten a lot of other uh, great pull requests as well. But you know, if if you're out there and you're listening and you want to contribute to libraries like uh, like this, then we're we're open for business. We're, we, we're happily yeah. accepting pull requests. Yeah. I've been working with Gerhard Lazu on the deployment of our new website and CMS and all that good stuff. And we have been discussing uptime monitoring. And he's a, he's a DevOps guy. And he, so he has opinions on all the different uptime monitors <laughs> in the world. Uh, the, the ping dumbs, the uptime robots, the uh, the new shiny apex ping, uh, which it looks interesting. And yep. one of the things is I asked him, like, what's the best one? Because I've been using this uptime robot thing, which I appreciate. It's free for me and cheap for many people. So I don't want to uh, really diss it here on the show, but yeah, not 
the best thing that I not fit in all my needs, but I use it. And, and he's like, I've used all of them. He's like, I have accounts on nine different <laughs> monitors. He's like, they're all sub, they're all subpar in some way, and they all fall down in some way. He's like, I just, I just, I just use them all. <laughs> so I think he's gonna, I think he's gonna be interested in checkup. Yeah, yeah. Sure. I, I would love to hear his thoughts. Well, Bjorn, we uh, we would totally ask you the uh, hero question on the show, except that you've already answered it on Beyond Code. So instead of doing that, we're just going to link up your um, your interview on Beyond Code at GoForCon 2015. But one of the other closing questions we like to ask is really uh, an invitation to the community. So from SourceGraph to the community, what are the best ways, you know, with your mission, with what you're doing, with all the things you have going on right now for the open source community to step in to support what you're doing or to help you move the ball forward towards the progress you're trying to make, whether it's, you know, on the company side or on the open source side, what's, what's moving source graph forward and how can the open source community step in and help out? Yeah. So I think the, the best thing right now is just to try out source graph and use it to explore some open source code, you know, maybe use it to dive into that repository that, uh, you know, think you think is really cool, but perhaps a little bit inscrutable or uh, overwhelming right now. Cause you know, really the reason we made it was to make it easier to dive in into unfamiliar code and, and to figure out what's going on, what it's doing. So, you know, use it for that. Hopefully it helps you. Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback. And if you end up liking it, um, you know, tell your friends, tell your teammates and uh, help us spread the word. What about language support or editor support or different areas where we talked earlier in the show about cross-pollination or motivations to like Look at where you're trying to go and, and, you know, is there any unturned rocks out there that uh, you just personally don't have time for? You're, it's not on your roadmap, but the open source community can step in and help out. Yeah, totally. So, uh, you know, even for the languages that we do currently support, the tool chains could always be better. You know, the Go, JavaScript, Python, uh, TypeScript. Um, those are the languages that we have kind of work in progress tool chains for. We'd love to get contributions for that. If uh, you, your favorite language happens to be a language that's, not one of those languages. Uh, if you reach out, we'd love to work with you on on how to kind of build a tool change for that. Um, it's one of those tasks that I think like uh, building a source code analysis tool chain seems like really fancy, but uh, you just come talk to us. It's actually pretty straightforward and and you actually kind of learn a lot about the internals of, of programming languages and, and level up as a programmer when you do so. So if you're interested in any of that, um, just uh, you know, tweet at us or uh, shoot us an email and uh, we're happy to connect and, and see how, how we can work together. On your contact page, it's hi at sourcegraph.com. Is that a good email for something like yep. that? That's perfect. Awesome. Any closing thoughts from you, Byung, for... Uh, for the listeners who've been uh, listening this whole entire show, I think it's uh, our, I think we're past, are we past time? 14 minutes? We're, yeah, we're past 14 minutes. Wow. Okay. So we're over time <laughs> uh, by a bit. I didn't even, hadn't even been watching the clock, Jared, this last 14 minutes. Okay. So we're going on an hour and a half show roughly. Any closing thoughts for the listeners who've been hanging on to the, to the end of the show here? Um, I think I would just say, you know, I'll, I'll speak directly to the, the listeners who might be a little bit newer to programming because, you know, I was definitely a, a person once who, uh, you know, I, I didn't start programming really in earnest until end of high school, uh, beginning of college. And uh, that's, it's a little bit old <laughs> for a lot of uh, programmers in, in kind of the, the software industry. And uh, so like, if you're a person who's just learning to code and it just seems like 
there's this like huge universe of things out there that you uh, you can never hope to to know. Uh, just say you know, just keep going. Um, dive into source code. Learn from the examples of other people. Um, it's not rocket science at the end of the day. And once you get out the other end and you can build stuff on your own, it's it's like you you've been given magic powers. A lot of great advice to you uh, from you as well from that Beyond Code interview. I can remember you saying, you know, what would you go back and change? And I'll just give a snippet here because we'll link it up anyways. But you said, go back and read more source code. And, uh, and I thought that was such a uh, an interesting answer considering what you do now with SourceGraph because um, that's pretty much what the tool is that you built does is read source code and, you know, creates more information based on that, some more information, you know, some more logic on top of that. But um We'll, we'll link that up. I thought that was a pretty interesting thing, too, as well, just to kind of go back in and dive into the open source, source code out there and, and yeah. don't feel like uh, there's a different way to get it right. You know, that, that uh, reading source code is probably the best option to learning the program. Yep. Well, Byung, thank you so much for uh, for coming on the show and definitely thank you for, you know, y- you know your, your love for open source and your love for productivity for developers out there and, and obviously... Uh, all the things that SourceGraph and your company is doing to to um, to prosper open source, but also to give us better tools to to not have to rework every time or recreate the wheel every time, and to leverage the collective knowledge out there available in open source and all these uh, open repositories to help us make our day-to-day lives a little bit better. And that's uh, that's obviously a pretty cool thing. So. Uh, sourcegraph.com is where you can find sourcegraph obviously uh, github.com slash sourcegraph is where you can find a lot of their code and uh, with that fellas let's uh, let's call this show done and say goodbye thanks so much Adam and Jared for having me on the show I really appreciate it love the change log and uh, keep doing what you're doing awesome thanks man we appreciate that 